This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Anissa Khalifa. I'm a writer and podcaster. I'm currently working on a memoir about surviving personal apocalypse post 9 11. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Khadija Khalil. I'm a bookseller by day and podcaster and writer by night. Walaikum salam rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I know it's weird to say salam, like two initial salams in a row. And I was like, I actually want to say walaikum salam. We'll get better at this. Inshallah, inshallah for sure. So, shall we begin by introducing ourselves? Yes. So, I'll go first. I, just to like add on to my introduction, I am kind of like a a nomad since birth. I've been traveling around. I grew up partially in Canada, partially in the U.S., and I did my undergrad studies. Uh, One of my majors was diaspora and transnational studies, and I did my master's in critical Asian humanities. So, I have pretty strong background um, in like history, cultural studies. English, um, Orientalism, critical race theory, all that fun stuff. All the things that make you feel depressed <laughs> when you're when you're studying it. But so that's kind of where I'm coming from to this. And I'm also uh, an American who was living in the U.S. at the time that 9-11 happened. How about you? I'm acting like I don't know you. <laughs> Please tell me about yourself. Uh, I'm the scientist of the pair. So I know very little about history and politics and stuff that requires deep thinking she says Uh, that but then she comes out with these like deep amazing analyses and like one sentence text to me and i'm like wow you're really smart mashallah i i don't know what to say to that but jazakallah i am a one-time islamic studies and quran teacher and i have a background in education as well so my undergrad was sort of hard science and then i went on to postgrad in psychology and education but that was a long time ago so what i've done since then mainly is read a lot of ya books you thought i was going to say something like <laughs> deep <laughs> I was like, no trashy romance and just for like sort of geographical context i'm in north carolina and khadija's in london so that's kind of where we're coming to london england as opposed to london ontario yes which is a place that is on the Muslim map right now as well because of bad things. Yes. Sorry to bring it down so soon. Uh, we're going to be bringing ourselves down anyway. So uh, speaking of that, what is this project? Why are we doing this? Basically, as we approached the, you know, the anniversary, the 20 year sort of, I feel like anniversary even makes it feel kind of because it's not something we're celebrating. Mm. You know, it's it's just sort of as we as we approach like marking the date of 20 years since 9-11, It just suddenly hit me that like this kind of crept up on us without us even realizing like the time has passed in some ways really quickly and so much has changed. And we just wanted to kind of look at how how this impacted the world and how it changed the world, but also how it particularly impacted just the lives of regular Muslims who were not at that time thinking of themselves as somebody separate from the rest of the world. We were not thinking of ourselves as a community that was singled out in the way that we ended up being afterwards. Particularly, we wanted to talk to our generation. You know, we were were young. We were kind of just coming of age at that time. And we were sort of just 
figuring out the possibilities of who we wanted to become. And overnight, things just became very different for our generation. And so we just wanted to look at this kind of unique mix of like visibility and invisibility, hatred and gaslighting, the kind of political awakening that, you know, usually comes once in the long lifetime of a racialized minority. That was kind of our moment. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Bija? I'm thinking of it as something between an oral history and a sociology project. And I think I'm particularly fascinated by oral histories right now because, well, because I'm fascinated by stories. And I think the story that you can put yourself into or that you can see yourself in is a particularly powerful story. So I'm hoping that this sort of act of talking about our stories and sharing them with other people who went through if not the exact same things we did but very similar things with like you know maybe like a couple of degrees of deviation but I think when we tell stories we do them to connect with each other so when we are doing this with our future guests inshallah it will end up being something inshallah that will make us closer to each other and that will make us without being cheesy but like love each other better yeah i think part of it is to kind of provide an alternative narrative to the kinds of narratives that are you know always formed by the dominant majority mm -hmm. and especially that were pushed so hard in the last 20 years about what 9-11 was what it meant what it what we should focus on and what we're supposed to feel yes and the things that we must say Yes. So there's like there's been the script that's been provided to us that we must follow to the letter, otherwise it's seditious. And to be able to give ourselves permission to actually tell the truth to ourselves and to each other, perhaps we can get some kind of healing from that. And perhaps it will, for us, between ourselves, to feel that we were not alone when we went through this, because I can say that oftentimes that period of our lives, we probably did feel very alone and very isolated as Muslims, even among other Muslims. Yeah, You know, there was a kind of uh, thought policing almost, not even almost, I think there was a very clear thought policing at that time for us. But perhaps we've reached a point where we're now allowed to say, you know, we went through these things, like we can gather in collective therapy. And I want to acknowledge sort of the burden of that weight that we've walked with and work on putting some of it down. And particularly, I think the anger, have a lot of anger. Yeah. And, and it's also about like who is allowed to be angry in these moments, right? And who has to sort of stay silent. Yeah. And, and how the kinds of emotions that are performed in public and who gets to perform yeah. those emotions. So, I mean, there's a lot that we want to talk about. And this is only the beginning. So, you know, we can't go into everything. We'll but... unpack that suitcase slowly. <laughs> Yeah. So before we talk about who we're going to be talking to, um, we wanted to talk about who the audience is for this. And just briefly, like, I think first and foremost, it's us, you know, our sort of cohort of like millennials who were kind of coming of age at that time, but then also like our community, our global community of Muslims, um, but also like everyone else as well. You know, like one of the things that we wanted to do with this was just put our our experiences out there so that they become part of this broader tapestry of like human experience because we are so often dehumanized and left out of the human mm. experience as Muslims. And so in our tone and in our sort of manner and in some of the terms that we'll use, it's going to be kind of with a with a Muslim flavor. <laughs> but of course, you know, if you have questions or if there's a word that you don't understand, like you can always reach out to us like on social media or like email us. We're always happy to explain 
So that's kind of who we're talking to audience wise. And I also feel like this is a kind of trust exercise as well. And I'm sure that like everyone has this understanding of when you're in a group, you have like your own private way of speaking with them. And so Muslims among Muslims, they will speak a certain way because you're coming from a specific place that you all have in common. But how mm. you speak with your fellow Muslims isn't necessarily how you will go and speak with someone who's not a Muslim. So this is also, yeah, it's an exercise in trust. And what does Megan Wyatt call it? Fearless vulnerability. Yes. So why are we talking specifically to this age group of Muslims? You know, like we're going to talk to people born roughly between like 1980, 1991. So that's like, you know, in 2001, you're probably like in between year six or, you know, sixth grade all the way up to like university, depending on, you know, we're talking to people from both sides of the Atlantic because we are also from both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> and I think we really experience things differently because of that. And and we, we thought it'd be an interesting conversation. So why why these people, Khadija? I think when we were first talking about doing this as a project, actually, we didn't talk about doing it as a project. We were talking about your book. And then it occurred to me, <laughs> <laughs> and then it occurred to me that there's a surprising silence among a, a very specific age group when it comes to visibility in the media or in prominent positions of leadership, either within Islamic organizations or, you know, non-Islamic organizations. And there's just, it's just, it's surprising because once you start noticing it, you keep noticing it because mm. it's not that Muslims are quiet. They're not. I mean, thankfully, that's actually one of the best things to have come out of the tragedy that did happen is that Muslims realized that they couldn't stay silent. And so then you had, you've had Muslims talking nonstop. Whether people listen or not is a different question, but they've been showing up in every possible place that they can enter and like just, you know, putting their hand up, hands up and saying, we're here, but not in our age group. Yeah. And why is that? That's so strange. And it's one of the questions that we sort of want to look at. Because again, as we were planning this project, I spoke to other friends and people who will guest with us uh, in the future as well, inshallah. And they, like, I wasn't sure if I was making it up. I wasn't sure if this was just like me trying to exceptionalize our age group and being like, oh, you know, we're just like, we're special. Right, we're special because we're underrepresented. And um, you didn't know if you're just being an obnoxious millennial. <laughs> Oh, I have thoughts about uh, the whole millennial thing as oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a conversation for another time. Right. So once you begin to notice, it's a really difficult question. So there's this, like, a difficult interplay of visibility and silence. Like, mm. as Muslims, especially as practicing Muslim women, we are so visible in our existence, but we're so silent in our presence, right? And that's that's something we want to look at and unpack and sort of figure out why that was the case. Like, what are the sources and what are the causes of that silence? I don't know if it's even like silence, but it's more like erasure. Absolutely, actually, you're totally because right. I don't think any of the Muslim women that I know of my age group are silent. We are very outspoken. That's true. I have not been silent a day. <laughs> yes, exactly. We talk a lot. We really do. But there has been a ton of erasure. And, you know, you brought this up, but it was an age of, you know, like where you had, you start to have political consciousness, but you don't have political power. You know, you're old enough to know that something big is happening, but you're not really old enough to be able to process it in the way that say, you know, we can now at mm -hmm. our ages. 
And so you are beginning to understand that you have a voice, but you're not quite sure what you want to say with it. I mean, one of my theories is that I think because of our very specific positioning at that time as people with political consciousness, but without political power. However, we had predecessors who did have political power and who did have like just general power to move in society and enact like actions. They were able to do things. And we were workers. I think we were a worker generation. We were the drone be- like drones as in bees, not, you know, the other things. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> that word has see, become a- see this is like one of the has occupational hazards of being a Muslim is that you have to be very careful about the vocabulary you use and always qualifying and clarifying that, you know, when you say mm-hmm. someone is the bomb, you you know, don't mean. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I don't say that anymore. I don't even type that word. Yeah. And and also we're in this particular spot where there's two kind of defining things, which is that we had a pre 9-11 childhood and a post 9-11 adulthood. We had a pre-digital childhood and a digital adulthood, you know, so these two very significant sort of civilizational shifts. Because, you know, like 9-11 was something that happened on American soil, but it had global reverberations Mm. that are still continuing today. And the same thing with the onset of the Internet in like, you know, 99, 2000, when it just like kind of exploded onto into our lives um, and and just completely changed everything. Mm. And those two things coming at the same time means that like it was such a time of like just instability and like and like change and upheaval. And so I think a lot of us were just kind of caught up in that wave and not really able to to process what any of this was going to mean. And I mean, we didn't know what it was going to mean. Mm. And nobody knew what it was going to mean. And it's interesting because today we talk about things like the Arab Spring and various social and political movements since as being facilitated through social media. And social media is the new thing of our kind of current epoch right now. The power that social media has to mobilize people and again, enact these big uh, group actions. But going back to 2001, that was a very nascent internet. And like social media, as we know it, of course, didn't exist. However, the social use of internet media, you know, it was a time of great growth. And, you know, that was a time of like forums and message boards. And people did organize around those things. AOL Instant Messenger. Remember that? MSN Messenger. MSN. I lived on MSN. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Did you have an away message with little sparkles on it? I was not a sparkler, no. (laughs) But I did do the whole appear offline trick a lot because, you know, internet relationships were complicated and you didn't always want people to know when you were online. So (laughs) after that little trip down memory lane, which... Anyway, so the point is that the internet like naturally played a really important role in how we experienced that particular tragedy in the aftermath, particularly like in the lead up to the Iraq war and after and just the time since like it's never not played a role in this tragedy. Yeah, I think so. That's interesting that you say that. I think for me, it was really television that was the media of this tragedy because I mean we'll go into this but I think that's the difference between now and then right Mm -hmm. where we were still kind of a monoculture back then there were still you know we still used to gather around the television and all kind of watch if not exactly the same thing pretty much the same thing and what social media has done yes it has 
brought a lot of problems. And, you know, one of the things is the the polarization of basically public discourse in some really problematic ways. But at the same time, part of the reason for that is because we are hearing the voices of people who have never had the power to be heard before Mm -hmm. in a public forum, right? And so I think that is a big change that hadn't taken off back then. Mm -hmm. And, And that was why it was so easy for things like the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan to just happen without anyone really taking any notice of the people who are saying, no, we don't want this. It was easy for them to just bury and ignore protests against the wars because it was just as easy as saying, like, we're not going to cover this on the news. And all the news channels were on the same page. And the government said, you know, if you don't go along with our line, you can't come to the White House press room. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not going to answer your questions. They were like, okay, we're going to, you know, say what the government wants us to say. So it was like very closed circle. No one else could get in kind Mm -hmm. of thing. I was actually really shocked to learn about that very recently, in fact. And don't roll your eyes, Nisa, because I'm going to talk about your about again. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan too. Love them. So your about is another podcast which ran a series very recently about cancel culture. And they've got this great episode called The Chicks versus the Iraq War, where they basically talk about all of the actions that kind of happened to create the news environment or to to create a false news environment around the Iraq war. So, like, I honestly, I just had no idea that basically in America you were not getting news. Like, I still, I'm like, I'm speechless. I'm absolutely speechless. I didn't know that. And it's shocking. And I recommend everyone go and listen to that. I think so to kind of, because we're going to go into all of this, but we're getting maybe slightly ahead of ourselves. Sorry. But I, no, no, but I mean, I'm glad you said that because for me, we're going to talk a little bit about like who we were as kids and leading up to, you know, that year. But I think for me, it was very clear um, because we moved to the U- US in 1998. And I noticed how stark the difference was in American news coverage from the news coverage of any other place that I'd ever lived before. And, you know, I'd lived in different areas in the in the Toronto area. I lived in Newfoundland for a while. I lived in Abu Dhabi, which is in the United Arab Emirates. I had, you know, visited Pakistan where my grandparents lived like almost every year as a kid. But I was struck by how insular and sort of one note American news was. And it's shocking because America is huge, like geographically enormous, yet you're all being fed a very thin pipeline of, of news or were then in that time. Yeah, I mean, it was also like the focus was very domestic, right? Right. So like in Canada, you would have a pretty equal distribution of national versus international news. In the United States news, like it would be 6pm, you would have like 55 minutes of American news, and you would have five minutes of international news, and it would be about Israel. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be like, what is what is our partner, our only the only democracy in the Middle East? What are they doing? That's international news. So um, they didn't even talk about Canada. And Canada was like right there. The only thing they would say about Canada was like, that's where the cold weather comes from. So I guess what I want to say is like, that was something that was clear to me, even as a kid, Mm. just because like, if you live in different places, you don't, the culture doesn't become just a sort of backdrop that you never notice, because you see how the culture changes from every place, you know, and I think that's probably why I ended up becoming interested in diaspora and transnational studies and cultural studies, because I noticed that, oh, like, every culture has good and bad things. Mm. No culture is superior to another one. And so like what we wanted to talk about here as well was kind of like what sort of identity formation did we have growing up, you know, as we were kids. For me, it was 
this constant experience of moving. So always, you know, uh, Edward Said used to, he talked about the essential sadness of exile and how that's like a heartbreak that you never really heal from. And I think I've felt that more as I've grown up and been a, an adult. But as a kid, I just always felt like out of place. I was always a new kid. I always was kind of unmoored. Things were always kind of in flux. But for us, like our religion was the constant, right? Mm. So, you know, we didn't live, you know, quote unquote, back home. So that wasn't like completely our culture. And then we kept moving from one place to the next. So I didn't have like a hometown that it was, you know, sort of rooted or embedded in. But our values as Muslims were universal. They worked no matter where we went, everywhere we went, there was a Muslim community. You would, you could walk into any masjid and just pray. Everyone prays the same way. Everybody greets each other the same way. And Islam is very elastic in the sense that it can fit with any culture. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, yeah. it's a set of values and beliefs. Yeah. It's not a, 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 like a strongly defined rigid culture that you have to adhere to. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of who I was as a kid. That was kind of how I grew up and how I thought of myself. What about you? I think the feeling that I have carried for probably most of my life and even now is the sense of being an outsider, even among outsiders. And that was particularly stark for me growing up because, you know, I was in a family that prioritized Islamic learning over like ethno-national identity and cultural practices. Oh, same. And that was a very same. conscious choice that, you know, um, my parents made. They deliberately cut a lot of like they just cut everything of these cultural practices out of our lives in order to make sure that we learned Islam authentically. And that was definitely an excellent choice that I do not regret in any way. However, it did, it was different to my peers. Like even like the other Muslim families that were around us and the Muslim friends that we had, none of them had that same culture. They would all bond over their like Pakistaniness or, you know, their uh, particular regionality or their interest in Bollywood. And like, we didn't watch things like that because they were a bit haram, right? So <laughs> it's yeah. like, you're, you're not watching that. Like we watched, you know, like the message on um, repeat <laughs> yes. for like 20 years. And like, I can, re I can recite that film to you. It was a great film. Um, so what my parents also chose was to, like, there are choices that they made, for example, to prioritize, like, their children's education over being embedded in a community of, like, I'm Bengali. So in London, you know, East London is the place for Bengalis. Like, that's where you go if you're Bengali. So there wasn't really a significant community of Muslims and certainly not of Bengalis where I grew up, which is in South London. And so the the Muslims that we had around us, we didn't like have a language in common with them. Like, you know, they would speak uh, Urdu or Punjabi and like I didn't. And so you, you had this difference that was compounded by further differences. And the commonalities at that time just didn't have that impact because people didn't have the same beliefs that we had. So we were like kind of, um, I feel complicated about saying this word in public, but we were like the, the fundies of the gang. They were like these like two Islamic, two practicing, very strict and it's you know like it gives you a certain um like you gain a certain reputation for not being 
particularly fun or interesting and right. I, I don't know right well because you know because like unlike what people would have you believe like any other religious group muslims are very diverse in practice and belief in you know sort of the expression of of their religion and their daily lives like we're hugely diverse mm. so many of us and like that's also part of our tradition right like our tradition wasn't about everyone doing the exact same thing like even our scholarly tradition is full of times where people respectfully disagreed with each other and both of them were like fine yeah. you know it was fine they're both authentically part of the tradition right. I really relate to what you say about being kind of culturally on your own little island because for me as well my parents did prioritize a religion over you know ethno-nationalistic sort of uh culturalism i don't even that's not even a word it's a good word though <laughs> you know like there were always you know like my dad grew up in pakistan my mom's ethnically she's pakistani but like she never lived there she didn't grow up there you know like her parents when they got married they lived in kenya then they had you know they had her and her older brother they went to england then they came to canada in the in the 70s so like she didn't grow up with a cultural Pakistani mm. upbringing either. And so I had also like my parents had different. So like what they had in common was also Islam. And that was kind of what they prioritized. Mm. At the same time, they also were very cognizant of the fact that one part of like being a good Muslim is like maintaining your family ties. So mm. we like, were always, you know, visiting my family in both Canada and in in Pakistan, like no matter where we were. Also, like, even though, you know, we weren't necessarily like watching Bollywood or going to like Pakistani dinner parties all the time, my parents did want us to learn the language. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here's my mom. She's never spoken a word of Urdu in her <laughs> life. She only kind of, she only understands Punjabi. Literally, like with us, she like went through all of these books that she would go, she would get them in Pakistan. We would like learn Urdu together. So we did it up to like fourth or fifth grade. And so, you know, like when we were growing up, like we're supposed to speak Urdu mm -hmm. at home. And like, I value that so much, honestly. Like it's such a gift that, you know, she gave me and that my dad gave me that like they did value the language. It's oh, really wonderful. But it wasn't even that they were like, well, it'll help you learn Quran too because it's got so much Arabic <laughs> well, in it, right? that's my trick these days to reading Urdu is that I just treat it like it's Arabic and I can mostly read it. So it helps, right? It works. Like there's, it absolutely there's, works. Yeah, ton of overlap. <laughs> Although just it's slightly off topic, but I do want to sort of add this note that yeah learning the language because a lot of people had that as well where their parents really worked hard on making sure that the kids didn't lose their culture right and the main vehicle for that culture was the language and so the great tragedy for my parents is that our Bengali is really bad and a lot of that is down to we didn't use it at home because we'd always sort of revert to English because the ideas that you wanted to communicate and you wanted to have more complex conversations than you were able to have in Bengali. And so like where I want to go with that is that although we did have that, you know, we knew we were Bengali, but we also had that deep sense of belonging and being embedded in an English identity like I considered mm. although like technically English is not my first language I consider English my first language it's my most functional language I didn't know a word of English when I started school like at the age of four and like I have some pretty bad memories of that sort of non-lingual state yeah well for me like English is literally my mother tongue and I have complicated feelings about that and my mother also has complicated <laughs> feelings about that. But, you know, like 
you know, when we traveled, when we moved to Abu Dhabi, people would ask my mother, like, where are you from? She'd be like, we're Canadian. <laughs> um, and it took her a while to realize that that's not what they were asking. Uh, you know, that's true. But we were always like, yeah, we're Canadian. Mm. Like that was what we identified. Yeah, as. this is interesting as well, because this is like a conversation that we often had with our parents. I say we, but it was mostly me. Like my other siblings didn't have the same sort of crises over identity that I did for various reasons, which we may talk about later. But like, I would always insist to my parents that I was English. Like, how dare they suggest I wasn't? And my dad would laugh and be like, have you seen your brown skin? You can be as English as you want, but you're never going to be English enough. And it's like, yeah, he's right. And it really took me like, I don't know, it took me (laughs) practically 30 years to get there. (laughs) So (laughs) I did finally have my brown awakening, everyone. I got there in the end. It's one of those... It's one of those dad truths that you didn't want to hear at the time, you know? You're like, okay. The ironic thing is that my sister, who's eight years younger than me, she started having that same kind of um, thing where she'd be like, I'm English. Like, don't impose your identity on me. You don't get to decide what I am. Like, you know, that self-determination of I get to decide where I'm from and who I am. And I was like, girl, you're brown. You ain't nothing but a Bengali, okay? (laughs) You're like up or down, English or non-English, you're Bengali and no one is going to believe anything else. So embrace it. So yeah, a tangent. But I feel like it's useful to talk about those things because when we talk about like Muslim identity, there's also an embedded immigrant identity uh, aspect to that. Yeah, and it's also like not exactly the same as the double consciousness that W.B. Du Bois used to talk about, uh, you know, about how like Black Americans were kind of living these in these two worlds and in these two identities Mm. at the same time as a Black person and also as an American. Mm. And I think it doesn't quite map on exactly the same. Of course, that's a unique experience, but it is like at once it's your homeland and at the same time, your homeland doesn't necessarily love you back, (laughs) you know, and it doesn't necessarily want you. Boy, does it. Um, ever not (laughs) and so that's very complicated right and I also you know talking about the language thing I knew a lot of people growing up who were around my age whose parents deliberately did not teach them their own native language because they wanted them to assimilate Mm -hmm. and they thought that having a second language and for them to be bilingual would actually hinder them hurt them yes and it's not until like you know, a few years later, or like, you know, maybe the next generation where people were like, oh, no, actually, bilingualism is a big asset. And, you know, I want my kids to have that. But then also at that point, you know, if you're like second, third, fourth generation, you've already lost a lot. And you and your spouse both speak English all the time to each other. How are you going to teach them that language, even if you do know it, right? Like it becomes very hard. Because you prioritize communication over mode. And so then you just always reach for the one that's easiest for you, which is what ended up happening for, you know, in my family. We have conversations and people find this really weird. My parents are speaking Bengali, we're speaking English back. And we don't notice this because this is how we communicate. That's how my mom grew up. Her parents would speak Punjabi to them and they would respond in English. And you don't even realize that there's like any kind of like code difference there. It just it's how you communicate. That was a wide tangent. So I guess we can sort of come back on track. We've answered this quite a lot but I feel like it's still worth exploring this like we've talked about having this distinct sense of your Muslim identity but how did you feel about that sense of being different like did you feel unlike your peers did you feel alienated from them in any way or like how did that work for you so I think for me I didn't feel different until they made me feel different so you know you have these experiences because 
if you're the only brown kid in a school where everybody else is white, which was my experience for most of my schooling. Like I went to public school my whole life. And for the majority of those times, I was in majority white spaces. And it wasn't really until I got to university where I was in like a more diverse environment. And I didn't really think of myself as being different because I was in my own skin and I was looking Mm -hmm. out at a white world. And, And then you just kind of unconsciously identify with them and you don't think of yourself as looking different because you're not looking at yourself all the time, <laughs> yeah. right? You're looking at them. <laughs> and then they'll make comments. And then you're like, oh, yeah. they think of me as different, you know? And so then you, it's like you have these moments where you're like, oh, you don't really consider me to be the same as you. But I would say that pre-9-11, it was more racial. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have that flavor of, I find you like strange or foreign or uncomfortable, particularly because of your religion. It was just you're a brown person and you're not the same as me. It was just like generalized white supremacy. It wasn't specified Islamophobia. Let's put it that way. I really relate to that. So I want to ask, this sounds random, but I will explain in a moment. Do you remember Adam's World? Yes. My sister loved Adam's World. She watched it all the time. (laughs) So for those who don't know, Adam's World is like um, the Muslim take on Muppets. So they're like Muslim Muppets. And so they had this segment, and you'll remember this um, if you've watched it, where they'd present you with a montage of all of these really different looking people. And they would go, what do these people have in common? Oh, yeah. And then be like... (laughs) So you'd get this like countdown. And then... So like a child would answer, um, they're all Muslim. <laughs> and then they'd be like, right. <laughs> so like my comment on that is that we always had this messaging, like both from like our primary texts as Muslims, which is the Quran and the Hadith. But we also had that in our cultural products, like of the difference and the unity and that the difference uh, was like, it's a gift from Allah. It's a gift from God to be cherished and appreciated but that the unity came from our shared values and principles in Islam and not from ethnic origin or skin color or geography Mm. or even like abstract things like political ideologies. So there's always been this sort of clear anti-nationalist through line that's really important to Muslim identity and not, yeah, right. And not as sedition, but as like this vital aspect of being able to recognize the humanity of people who look different to us or who speak another language or who wear different clothes. And I think for us as Muslims, we always identify that as a strength, that we share something with others that transcends the borders of our nations. And it's also that same sentiment that is used to describe us as seditious and therefore threatening and therefore dangerous. Like, how can we relate to people who do not share our sort of ethnic origins or our geographical um, uh, location or, you know, like political ideologies? And that's just one of the things that really struck me as we were sort of prepping for, for this episode. And I just really wanted to put that thought out there as well. Yes. Such a good point. Such an important point. It's one of those you, ironies, Adam. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Adam's World. Wow, you literally took me back to 1999 with that little uh, impression that you did of the little kid. <laughs> I also had a brother who was about the same age as your sister who just watched them nonstop. And also it was like, yes. that was my work at the time. So it was always mm. on. Yeah, the Adams World tapes and the Rugrats in Paris tapes. Those were like just on constant rotation <laughs> had, in our house. You know the Yusuf Islam Tala Al Badr Elena. My brother loved that. We had made the special video for him where it was just on loop and just play it all the oh. time. Such a great crack. Such a beautiful. It song. really is. Anyway, so um, before we go into kind of our experience on the day of nine eleven. 
let's just talk a little bit about the sort of the political backdrop of of our childhoods and kind of you know we talked about our personal experiences growing up but what was sort of the the context that we were growing up in politically i mean we didn't realize any of this was going <laughs> on but it's kind of you know it was the the landscape mm. that all of this kind of came crashing down into you know what's funny is i was such a news nerd and i've been such a news nerd my entire life until like a few years ago when it got too depressing so like as a child, I watched a lot of news and my dad watched a lot of news. So I watched a lot of this like grown up adult news that I didn't understand a lot of. But like I remember sort of very big things like, for example, there was a lot going on in the 90s. You had um, mm. like, you know, the end of the Cold War. So you had the breakup of the Soviet Union. You had the Berlin Wall come down um, closer to home. We had the troubles in Northern Ireland, which were drawing to a close. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Troubles were an ethno-nationalist conflict between um, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, and the Republic wanted a united island and Northern Ireland wanted to stay part of uh, the United Kingdom or Great Britain. I can't remember the difference right now. Um, and that sort of the latest iteration of that sort of started from the 1960s and it ended in about 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. So that was like on sort of to the west of us and then to the east of us, you had um, the Bosnian War, you had this sort of incredible, unbelievable genocide that was occurring throughout the 1990s as the world looked on. And because they were, you know, they were Muslims by heritage. And so there was this whole... You know, like, I think this is definitely, this has been true for like a long time and certainly before 9-11, but Muslims have always had like alternative news sources, like our own news sources that would report on things that actually went unreported in our mainstream news. So we always knew about these things in a slightly different way. And it was always much more harrowing. And because of that fellowship, that the kinship that you have with Muslims wherever in the world they may be, there was also that emotional connection with them. And that was followed by what happened in Kosovo. And then you had like the Chechnyan war. And uh, then you had the Gulf War, which was like early in the 90s, that was 91. And so you had all of this anti-Muslim tension that was already sort of in the air, which just caught fire with 9-11. So that was, that was the political backdrop, I remember. Yeah. For me, I mean, I was born in the latter half of the 80s. Um, I don't remember much about what was going on politically. I do remember that when we were in Abu Dhabi, that was, you know, 89 to 92. Oh. So the Gulf War was happening while we yeah. were there. And all I really remember is like seeing fiery, bomby things on the TV. I was so little. Mm. Like that's where my earliest memories start is when we were in that house. Um but then if you look at it, you know, not from my personal memories, but like from the context of like Orientalism, right? Like Orientalism is, it goes back many, many centuries. And if you don't know what Orientalism is, it's basically this idea that, quote unquote, the East is, you know, backward and savage and decaying and corrupt and sort of like outdated and it's on the way out. Um, whereas the West, quote unquote, is rational and, you know, advanced and refined and enlightened and you know, it's all about science and knowledge, whereas, you know, the East is, is just like about savagery and, you know, superstition. So, I mean, these are narratives that, you know, the British Empire has been, it was one of the foundations of their colonization of the entire world, right? So this was a, a knowledge structure that helped them take over all of these countries and rule them for such a long time. And it's never really left our cultural conversations and our societies in these 
former British settler colonial states and also in, you know, the, the old uh, imperial metropole. Good old London, right? <laughs> Good old England. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned the Troubles and, you know, we are both from what formerly used to be India before it was cut up into pieces. Mm-hmm. And Ireland also, that was kind of as the British Empire was facing the fact after World War II that they were going to have to give up their colonies, that they, that this was kind of the beginning of the end for them. One of the things they did was to do this experiment, which they said was, you know, in order to resolve ethnic and, you know, racial and religious tensions, um, was to just divide the places that they had to leave. So they divided India, they divided Palestine, and they divided Ireland. And it was it was a way for them to not give up as much power as they would have otherwise had to give up because they they kind of destroyed those societies on their way out, right? So the violence that that unleashed on those native populations meant that they were just scrambling to try to make some type of sense and and sort of reestablish their societies in the wake of that instead of being like, oh, we're finally independent. Now we're going to, you know, have some kind of power on the world stage. No, that they didn't want that to happen. Right. <laughs> right. So so these things have very long tails politically. Right. And like a really good source for this is Edward Said's book covering Islam in the United States. What really sort of brought Muslims and Islam into the public consciousness was the 1979 oil crisis. Because before that, you know, the Middle East was there, whatever. Like generally, we don't like brown people. That's just a thing. It's in the background. But when people realized that these little small oil producing countries in the Middle East have so much power over our daily lives, because when they said, no, we're not going to give you oil, people were like lining up at gas stations and they couldn't drive their cars. And so like that was kind of an impetus for a lot of these stereotypes that became very prominent and very sort of it became much more profitable to paint Muslims in particular ways in a really front and center kind of way instead of just being part of that scenery of like American xenophobia and imperialism that it kind of had been before. So, you know, that that is kind of where we're coming from before all of this happens. And then in the 90s, you have the U.S. as a very rich uh, country that is kind of high on its power. You know, they're they always used to talk about how they're like the most powerful. What is it? You know, they were like the the superpower mm-hmm. of the world. They could literally do anything. Their culture was dominant. And because the Soviet Union had broken down, so their main rivals yes. had disappeared. And then yes. you had like, again, this is a thing that I remember very clearly is like how Bill Clinton brokering the Good Friday Agreement. I don't know if that actually happened, but that was the sense that I got. And then you had like the Balkans War, which... Oh, I have so many feelings and thoughts about that. But Mm. basically, until America decided, was it America or NATO? Basically the same thing. (laughs) Functionally the same thing. So until America decided that, okay, let's, let's end this thing. Just like nobody else had the kind of power that the US had. Yes. And, you know, they had this image of themselves that they had sort of pushed so aggressively of them being like, you know, the leader of the free world and the you know, the world's policeman. And like and they had a moral authority that nobody else yes. had. And that they were, you know, the defenders of democracy mm. and that they would only intervene if they were, you know, trying to stop oppression. I mean, all these myths, mm. right? And, and, and you would know that they were false if you had any connection to anybody that lived outside of the country. But people who didn't, Americans who didn't mm. had no idea and they believed all of that. So I guess the conclusion to that particular segment is thank God for the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to 2001 and the morning of September the 11th. And can you tell us what that was like for you? 
Yeah. So I was in 11th grade. I was 15 years old. I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was taking an exam in my English class. And our our principal just suddenly made an announcement saying, like, just want you to know that, like, we're we're going to protect you and you all are going to be safe here and like, don't worry about anything. And I was like, what, what is what is happening? And then we finished our test. We left. We went to our next period, which was in the library. Um, and everyone was just gathered around the TV. And now, like, I'm sure we can all see that image of the plane flying into the, the building in our minds. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, like, it's always going to be engraved into my mm-hmm. brain. Um, and they just were kept replaying that. I think I don't remember if it was the first plane or the second one had just. And so they just kept on playing it over and over and over. And I was like, are we watching a movie today? Like I asked my friend, she's like, no, this is happening like in New York. And we were all just like frozen. And, you know, like you in that first moment when something really horrible happens and you just kind of feel like numb disbelief. Mm-hmm. And then you it slowly kind of dawns on you like, oh, my God, like this is actually real and it's happening. And we were just, you know, like in that in those first few weeks, I think, um, Americans just kind of gathered around televisions and it was like we we couldn't turn the TV off. Mm. Not like people used to gather around the fire. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of like like that, like that kind of communal, like you don't know how else to process this except to just keep talking about yeah. it and to keep just like being with other people mm. and just, you know, and so like it was really, you know, I mean, it was terrible. It was so shocking. And in the beginning, they didn't know how many, you know, this number of 3,000 people who were killed, that came out quite a while later. So in the beginning, they were saying things like 10,000 people. Like, we didn't know, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then they had, I don't think I was allowed to see this, but they had, you know, footage of people just, like, jumping off the buildings. I remember and, that, really, um, Just really, yeah. So, I mean, it was really, really horrifying. And so everyone was kind of just in shock for a while. And then slowly, and in the beginning, they didn't know, like, what, what was going on or who had done it or um, I don't remember how long it took them to find out like who these people were. And then they published their photos and then they and then they started the whole kind of run up to the war on Afghanistan. But I didn't feel at that time that it was anything other than just a really horrifying tragedy. I didn't think it would have any other type of impact on me than like what it would have on any other American mm. whose family wasn't directly impacted by it. Just something like just something really awful. Right. Because in that moment, all you do is identify with people on the most human level, right? Yeah. I think for Americans also, it was the first time since the Vietnam War where they saw this kind of horrifying loss of life on television. You know, like one of the things that really helped to end the Vietnam War is these journalists who went over and actually like traveled with the troops and showed people back home what was actually happening there. And that was a big reason that they ended up finally, you know, people were so horrified by what they saw. And I don't think since then we had seen as Americans like this kind of loss of life in such a shocking way, because I feel like with the wars in between, it was very far away. It was, you know, with mm. planes dropping bombs. It wasn't the same kind of up close and personal. I think it's the the immediacy of it that is also such a shock as well, because you don't yeah. imagine something like that coming home and when it's on what you consider home ground and if you think of it also like how much of our identity is tied up in like where we are and like as an American and like for us as I don't know as a sister nation I'm not sure like Mm -hmm. how to describe that best but that feeling like the kinship is easy between British and Americans yeah so 
you feel like it's happening to you, right? Like this happened to us collectively. And that us is, you are a part of that us. Like you don't feel in any way not part of that us. And and that was, of course, something that, that came later. But like in that moment, there's nothing but 100% being part of that grief and mourning. And yeah, just like the, the frozenness. I mean, honestly, there's not a better word than that, that just complete shock and being frozen in that moment of loss and grief. Yeah. And the scale of it, right? Like the scale of it was something that we hadn't really ever seen before. I mean, there was the Oklahoma City bombing, but it wasn't anything like Mm. this scale. Um, And the Oklahoma City bombing was carried out by a white man, although they tried to blame it on Muslims first. So it wasn't as easy for politicians to kind of immediately focus on an enemy, right? right? Whereas if it happens, if, if it's done by people who are foreigners and who have seemingly some type mm. of clearly defined ideology and purpose, you can instantly be like, okay, well, right. this answer to this mm. is armies and violence. And it becomes and, you know, easy to weaponize the grief of people into a, yes. you know, an instrument of war. Yeah. So we go from tragedy to tragedy. Yeah. And it's also like, it's the humanity of it. You know, like, I feel like in a way, what we did as a nation was we really let down the victims. And those victims were like from all walks of life. They were, you know, extremely, I mean, it was the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. There were people from all over the world of all religions and, you know, all nationalities and and ethnicities and races. But it was, in a way, I feel like really sorry towards those people and to their families because that tragedy that happened to them and that was done to them, that terrible act of violence was then used to justify so much more violence against so many more people and it's such a it's such a waste it's such a a miscarriage of justice you know mm-hmm. and i i was too young to really understand how things were going to play out but you know like speaking of dad truths <laughs> um my dad was actually in texas that weekend he had he hadn't come back he had a he had an interview in texas so we talked to him. It was a Tuesday, I remember. And he called us and he was like, you guys doing OK? And we were just like talking about how sad it was. And um, and he told my mom, like, make sure you lock the door tonight. And I was like, why would he say that? Like, we always lock the doors, you know. Um, but of course he knew. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, of course he knew what yeah, was coming. He's seen it before. Yeah. And then in the weeks, you know, that followed, it was just every day on the news. Why do they hate mm-hmm. us? Why do they hate us? you know, why does Islam hate us? And so like, then, you know, you kind of start hearing the stories, you know, there's a third grader in the next town over that got beaten up by his classmates. And then there's people getting shot and killed um, because they're brown. A lot of these people weren't even Muslim, Mm, right? right. Um, And then, you know, the incredibly quick ramp up to the war in Afghanistan. And and, and it was just, it just like, it just took my breath away how quickly. It was a matter of weeks, right? It was a matter of weeks, shockingly soon it really is so yeah so i mean there's a lot to talk about um we're gonna talk about all of these things we're gonna sort of examine how how the world has kind of transformed in the last 20 years you know what 9-11 has meant particularly for our generation but also for the world and Mm -hmm. for the way that we sort of how we live in it you know so many of our structures of of government you know like military structures the map of the world has been changed by this and i mean these things don't don't end once they're started it's true um and they end up bleeding out into so many different areas mm-hmm. of our lives so yeah i talked for a long time Khadija. i'm sorry no, that was all 
like there's nothing to be sorry about. I was riveted and I didn't notice time passing. And that's how 20 years go by. Yes. So I guess this is the place where we want to leave it for now. And in the coming weeks and months, we have a lot of questions that we want to work through with our guests and between each other. And some of those questions are like, for example, how has our relationship with the word terrorist changed and how has that evolved over time? And we want to talk about like, is it possible to talk about Islamophobia without talking about race? And that will naturally lead to what we just touched on, uh, the this racialization of Muslims and sort of the far reaching effects of that. And so there's a lot that we're going to unpack inshallah and we will have uh, experts on hand who will help us do that. Or rather, we'll help them do that. I think we'll hold the suitcases open. <laughs> it will be a group project. Absolutely. Yes. So is there anything else that you want to add before we close out? Um, I think just that we are very conscious that this is it's a heavy topic. It's a sensitive topic. You know, we hope that we can give it the seriousness that it deserves, but also kind of look for moments of reconciliation, hopefully, of healing, of of learning, and of connection. I think the connection is the thing, mm-hmm. like you mentioned earlier, it's really, really what's important to us. And just sort of leaving a record of what we went through um, in a way that I haven't seen before. Yeah, like a we was here. I don't know if you're familiar. Yes. Does this happen in the States as well? Like, so we have this like particular type of graffiti where people just like, you know, when they tag things, it's just like, it's literally, we was it, I was it. And it's like, you know, W-O-Z. So it, we it, we do, but not in that really cool <laughs> accent. So anyone who lives in London is 100% familiar with this, you know, Jack's was it. So Cad's was it. I love it when you go all <laughs> London. Well, inshallah, we'll have some more London guests to delight you with their accents. Yeah, I know. I'm so basic. We're getting excited about these accents. Oh, no, so am I. I'm like 100%. <laughs> and we are absolutely derailing. We are ready to close. Let's let's go home. Let's take this home. So if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at MipsPod. That's M-I-P-S pod. Yes. And you can email us at muslimInplainsight at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts. And if you go to muslimInplainsight.com, you can subscribe to the podcast. Yes. On your platform of choice. And that's all. Thank you for letting us be in your ears. And we'll see you next time, inshallah. Yes. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. Bye. Bye.